Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In our last episode, we spoke with uh, three administrators from the University Settlement Grange Park Community Center, people who provide a wealth of opportunities for our students, both in terms of extracurricular work and in volunteering. In today's episode, I'm really looking forward to talking to Sam HP. Sam is the president of Model United Nations at York University. Welcome back to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. I'm your host, Mike Helsby, and I'm joined today by Sam HP. Sam is the president of Model United Nations York, um, and we're excited to talk to him about his experience in that position and also, of course, uh, what a high school student might get out of participation in the Model United Nations. Sam, thanks for being with us. Uh, Why don't we just start off, tell the folks at home who you are, how you ended up at York, how you ended up in this, this position, the presidency of Model United Nations, and maybe a bit about your role there. Sure. Uh, thanks, Mike. Well, uh, as you know, the name's Sam H.P., how do you do? Uh, I got to, I actually never went to York originally. I was at the University of Liverpool in the UK. I was actually an international student. And uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic happened, I immediately ran back to Canada. And then I joined York in my second year and I'm majoring in pol- political science. So maybe that could help you why I preferred Mall UN. Uh, I joined the club in my third year. Uh, and it was kind of, uh, I did Mall UN in university in Liverpool. So I was familiar with that. I did it in grade 12 in high school. Uh, that's where I first started Mall UN. So that's where I got a little bit just of what it is, where I went to my first conferences, where I won my first award. But uh, no, York was, it wasn't the same as Liverpool mm-hmm. in the sense of how Mall UN was structured. It, it was kind of in a rebuild phase. Uh, there was only one existing member left of the club. And I was the second hire uh, for the club once uh, during the COVID lockdown pandemic in my third year. And then from there, we grew the club. Um, and I started off as the chief of staff first year, first time joining the club. And then this year, uh, by unanimous decision, I was named president uh, because I was the most experienced. I've been to competitions in person. I've won awards. I got that international domestic knowledge, I guess, mm-hmm. if you want to call it like that. And yeah, as president, uh, you know, my tasks are literally all the administration work ratifications funding uh talking to the hundreds of departments on york because everything's decentralized but uh it's overall great that's all i gotta say on that i I was gonna say i mean it sounds like you were were thrown into the fire and then very quickly gained the the confidence of, of the people you were working with um to be voted president unanimously in your second year it's impressive yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, feel good about it. Um, but before we, we jump into the specifics of uh, Model UN York and um, Braemar had, had a bit of a history with the Glendon College uh, Model UN, which is, I believe, your predecessor. And that was kind of interrupted by, by COVID. And you've, as you say, sort of resurrected um, the club in, in a slightly new form. 
Uh, before we jump into the, that history and the minutia of it, I just want to give the folks at home a chance to kind of catch up if they're not quite familiar with what Model United Nations is. Mm-hmm. Most people are pretty familiar with, at least broadly, the the mandate of the international organization, the United Nations. Yeah. Uh, but Model United Nations uh, is is something quite different, quite unique, and, and in terms of the educational experience itself for students, something that a lot leave high school or perhaps leave university with that as one of their primary memories, one of their really, really fond and mm. impactful uh, experiences from that time. So if you could, with that as your setup, can you just tell sure. us what is MUN, Model UN, uh, the general procedures associated with it, maybe some of its history, um, and, yeah. and especially how is it relevant to to students, high school students, poli-sci students, university, et cetera? Gotcha. Uh, so... Unironically, Model United Nations is kind. It's older than the actual United Nations. Mm-hmm. It was uh, founded in the 20s, and it used to be called uh, Model League of Nations, or the old school term. Uh, it was created by the Oxford University, and pretty much what it was and still is today. It's similar to like a mock trial. It's a recreation, recreation of the UN settings, like the General Assembly, where you have all the nation representatives. You know, each country can have an opportunity to talk. And that's kind of the same gist of what happens now with basically students from other universities. They participate at, you know, in-house competitions or like at like events hosted by other universities. The topics are like from normal General Assembly to like the World Bank to the UN Human Rights Refugee Crisis or and like the topics can be like the energy reforms of nuclear disarmament, anything from wide, wide ranging, and you just represent that country. You try to represent that views of the country. You push your agenda in the committee against everyone else, try to actually make resolutions, like pass actual legal documents unofficially, obviously, and that you don't actually have say over what the UN does. Um, or the pity. Yeah, I mean, no, pretty much. Uh, but that's just of what it is. And Mal UN now, uh, after it was created in the 20s, uh, Oxford kind of, the, that club kind of ceased to exist after a while. And then Harvard in Boston, it became the leading forefront of Mall UN conferences. Uh, the first conference was actually held in Pennsylvania in the U.S. in 1947. And that was the first time they called it Model United Nations after the whole League of Nations kind of went down. <laughs> but uh, since then, I believe every country in the world, especially in Western Europe and North America, they all have a competition hosted by various universities. There's some like actual international organizations that host the conferences for university students and for high school students as well. And it's it's a multinational encompassing thing. Like everyone has something of it. But yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I coached our, our model United Nations team for three years. Um, and I was immediately struck by just how far up, uh, in terms of, of intensity and quality, some of these competitions go. Like yeah. we started at, we had, we had a lot of students who were new to the, uh, to model United Nations and its procedures. And so we started at what, well, well, thankfully the Glendon, uh, uh, Mun conference, which was a really nice introduction. And, and they kind of treated us with kid gloves and gave us far more, um, leeway and and probably grace than than you would typically see at some of these competitions one like when you see harvard and berkeley and stanford and some of the as you say uh 
teams that are representing not just schools, but maybe a city or an area or even a, a country, it's impressive. And the, the organization that goes into these conferences is very impressive. No, it's crazy. I mean, I wish I got what you guys did with the opportunity at Glendon to first learn, like get the kids experience. I didn't get that mm. in high school. No, yeah, no. they uh, they threw me to UFT for my first ever conference, and they never. I didn't got practice either, and they're like, "Go have fun at UFT, Sam." And I'm like, "Thank you, guys. Wow. Very appreciative." Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. And UFT being, no one, if I'm right, one of the bigger conferences in the province, at least. And for high school, it's the largest in Canada. Yeah, uh, it's called UT Month. But no, back then it was. They have three competitions in high school. They have six sim, uh, UT Month, and a third one. I, they send me to six and they're like, it's only a thousand people. Sam, yeah, you're fine. I'm like, thank you. Very cool. That's reminding me of my DECA experiences in high school, if you know what that is. Um, no, we. I, I, I wish I could extend my thanks to some of the uh, organizers who helped us with that first Glendon Mun, because um, we walked into a very, very well-organized, but also a very um, welcoming and I guess I would call it a lower pressure uh, environment. We had... Um, what's the name of uh, the the administrators who would run, um, say, a security council session? Uh, they're called the chairs. The chairs. We 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 had yeah. chairs who were really really taking time, sort of outside of the traditional format of the of of a MUN conference and giving full explanations and really really treating these it as a learning experience and not as explicitly a competition. So we felt very well served. Um, as the president. And, and having been thrown in in this way, um, but obviously yeah. adapting quite quickly and quite well, what are your main responsibilities? Like, I know you're you're in the midst of setting up uh, a conference for this coming April, May. I would. It was originally planned to do April, May. Uh, this year, when I took over as president, I decided that, which again, why the Glendon chapter technically doesn't exist anymore is. I noticed that we had a lot of Keel members, part of the club. I'm a Keel student. Mm. And for people who don't know, York has two campuses. One's the French campus. They have three campuses. Really, the, the two major ones. One's the French campus, bilingual at Glendon. And then one's the just pure English campus at Keel. And I decided at the, during the summer that since we're just at Glendon, we can't get any of the resources that Keel offers clubs, but we have a lot of Keel members. So I just contacted both departments, both campuses, and said, how about for the first time in York history, we have one campus for both, uh, one club for both campuses. And they're like, well, we never did it before, but okay, you'll be the mock trial. And I'm like, thank you guys. Uh, but that, for the conference, because of doing that and basically a rebuilding year, we're now postponing it to the fall mm. of 2023. Okay. Because... All the new executives who are coming in, the new members, they have to be trained out. They need more experience at competitions to be able to then host students from high school to come over and give them a proper uh, like learning experience. We could do one, but I want it to be the best quality and the best for the students to actually learn and appreciate. But yeah, 2023 fall. Yeah, that's 2023 that's fall. It. We got it. You heard it here first, folks. Um yeah, and I, I completely appreciate that because, as I said, I think if with the group that I originally brought to our first conference, myself included, um, if we had just gone into a really tightly run, highly competitive environment, some of our students would have would have drowned. Right? They 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 would have 
been completely at a loss and it wouldn't have been a learning experience. It would have been ultimately probably a negative um, experience for them. And so, yeah, completely appreciate the amount of time it takes to train a staff and to prepare for a session that is going to have that kind of space for learning. Um, yeah. And we'll look forward to hopefully participating in fall 2023. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So let, let's get into um, what Model UN might look like for a student. Let's say I'm, I'm a parent out there and, and my kid comes home and they've got a brochure for this new organization, this, this new school club that they want to join, Model United Nations. Um, yeah. What would you want to tell that parent, pros or cons? What, what, what is that yeah. student looking at in terms of time demands, um, focus of attention, um, what, what is going to be asked of them in terms of uh, demonstrated skills, et cetera? Is this, how, how could you make the pitch for Model UN to a parent who's wondering about it? The pitch would be, it's a great opportunity to actually meet and talk with other members of the club or like socialize with people because you have like clubs that are more of the, if even if you'd like the like sports wise or even the mental ones like chess or soccer or basketball, there's no really actual verbal communication slash actually talking to each other for like long durations of times. It's like you play it. I was part of the soccer team. We trained, we played, everybody went home. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked to each other anymore. With Model UN, the benefit is you can talk to people during, before, and after continuously because there's always something to discuss, whether it's the meeting you just had, the topic you guys were talking about, competitions you guys are planning to go in weeks or months down the line you always have the opportunity to see them in person and talk to them comfortably, naturally, sit down. It's not, you don't have your blood pumping 24 seven with like endorphins. Like you can relax and talk to people and it's not that stressful. And if I was pitching like the pros and cons of it, the pro is, and the con, it's a time commitment and also not a time commitment in the sense, if you want to do meetings, I don't know what you guys at Braemar do, but in high school, we just had one meeting once a week for one hour. And university, we're having this, it's similar, it's two hours a week. Mm-hmm. So that's not really a huge, 24 hours in a day. People usually can spare two hours a week. Yeah. Uh, the con is, if you want to go to a competition, like for you guys, uh, Oman, which is hosted by the UF, UFT for high school students, I believe that's a three-day conference for eight hours a day. Yeah. And it's probably Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if I can remember correctly. That's a time commitment for a student because he has to travel to the university. He has to be in a room for like long hours during the day. If he has homework due the next week, he really can't do it on the weekend. That's where the time commitment comes in. But for like a casual person who just wants to meet once a week, talk with other people, it's no problem. That's that's the pitch, pretty mm-hmm. much. Great place to learn and yeah. meet new people. I mean, we've seen it firsthand, but you're so right to, to emphasize the communication skills that, that are a part of this and, and the emphasis on it throughout, whether you're in competition or just in your, exactly as you said, we do um, one hour a week, one, one full lunch period once a week. Our, our philosophy and debate society turns into a Malta UN club in the in the months leading up to whatever conference we do. Shout out to our teacher, Mr. Sean Dunsmore, who's been leading that group for a good couple of years now. Um, and, and it's an interesting comparison because Model UN is competitive. And so you'd, you'd think of it in the same realm um, as, the, as sports clubs. 
Um, and so often we hear from parents, I would like my son or daughter to play soccer, to, to be on the chess team, what have you, um, as a way of integrating, as a way of, especially for an international academy like ours, as a way of getting over culture shock, some of the feelings of alienation and loneliness that comes with moving to a new place and a new culture. And in, you know, I grew up an athlete, as, as you did, uh, when you're playing soccer with the guys, the, the sport almost acts like, a, um, like the medium by which you express yourself so that you don't have yeah. to actually kind of, as oh. you say, sit around and, and be expressive and articulate and, 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 you know, thoughtful, as you say, the adrenaline is pumping and, and you almost get to speak a completely different language in lieu of real personal engagement with say a teammate or a coach or, or the other people that are in that club. Um, I guess you could say that in, in MUN, the foreign policy orientation, the research and the academic side that goes into it does sort of act as that medium, but you don't get to use it as a, a sort of substitute for your identity in the way that you perhaps can in athletics, right? As you say, you, you got to go into these clubs and really um, put yourself, put your identity and your, your ability to express yourself on the line. Well, that's the great thing about Mali UN. You can do the research and identify as the country, but you also have the benefit of playing as yourself, like the actual who you are. You know, I've been to competitions where I've seen people, they represent a country that's negative on an issue, but they decide, I, you know what? I don't really want to be negative. I'm going to be positive and actually flip the script. And they might take criticisms in, the, in that room by the other country saying, you're, oh, you're a hypocrite, you're you know, flipping stances, but you get to express your actual self-value, self-rules. That's the benefit. You can be realistic with the country and then unrealistic by emotions, spreading your personal emotions to it. You get the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm remembering a very specific case where uh, two of our students were representing uh, sub-Saharan West African nations in, uh, I think it was three years ago at Glendon Munn. Um, and the situation was about resource distribution and the use of uh, public money to fund different, uh, I guess, corporate interests, or be they public or private. And both of these students took a really intentional stand, and they said, whereas we know how the, these two countries have behaved in the past in response to you know, taxation policies and the, the way they, they distribute resources, and especially the way things like mining are, are done in their country, we are going to take a different tact. And, and they did take it on the chin from other delegates who pointed out that their positive, altruistic, empathetic attitude was not necessarily in keeping with that country's policy past, but even their ability to recognize that difference and choose to, to, to represent another path, I think was really, really powerful for everybody involved. Um, and maybe it shouldn't take children or teenagers to show us, in some cases, how, how we'd like those in, in the most powerful positions in this world to behave, but it, it can be a real learning experience when they do. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about money. You mm -hmm. can do whatever you like. Pretty much. Yeah. So I, I'm a, let's imagine I'm a student. Uh, I've just joined this really cool MUN club at Braemar College or at York University. And I'm, uh, I'm thinking about preparation. Let's say the conference is two weeks out. What sort of skills am I trying to hone? And especially what's the process look like for me as I prepare for this conference? Uh, well, one skill you should pretty much hone is improv. Uh, I don't know if Braemar has a uh, drama club or a theater club. It actually would help. It would help to be good at improv improvisation because 
you can plan what you're going to say from day one for like two weeks in advance. But when you get in that room and one of the other people you're expecting to say something goes off script or they say something that catches you off the fly, you need to be able to respond pretty quickly and decently as well. Even if you're just uh, need to make up something on the fly, just quickly switch your position or switch a stance or uh, maybe call out the person real quick to change the whole subject or switch the idea. Being improv is great. And uh, for like actual going to a conference that like you said, for example, two weeks out, uh, you have to create a position paper, which if people don't know, it's basically a lot of these conferences, they ask the students to write a page or two pages of like your own background notes about your character or your country and basically what their stance is, what's their situation with the topic. And they ask you to do a little bit of homework. They don't tip, they, and that's optional. You know, you can do a position paper, which is great for you. You're learning a little bit more about yourself and uh, you can get an award. That's typically the whole, you can get an award if you don't do it. You're free to not do it. Don't really have to research anything. But when you get there, they're like, no matter how good you did in this room, we can't give you an award because you didn't put in the time to do a little bit of research about your own country. Mm -hmm. But that's what I'm saying. Improv, do a little bit of research on your own country, make that position paper. And that's pretty much all you need, just the two, research, improv. Yeah, yeah you can I, do more, but yeah. And you know, when you say it like that, research, improv, it doesn't sound um, necessarily so onerous or, or impressive, but boy, it's when you start thinking about the demands of the, the information marketplace that we're sending these students out to after their education, um, it's hard to think of two more valuable skills than that right, in, in really any right. field. If you can't think fast on your feet and either turn a situation in your favor or express yourself clearly and well in a, in a high-pressure moment, it's going to be difficult to survive in, in the business and information world, right? It will, and especially conference lasts for eight hours. Mm. So as I say, improv and research, uh, you need to be able to sustain yourself for three days because if you're being competitive... <laughs> They grade you over the three days. They don't grade you saying, oh, you were great on Friday, but Saturday and Sunday, you did nothing. Right. Same thing with, yo, you did great on Saturday, but Friday and Sunday, you just fell apart. Like, you need to keep the energy up so you can always, always look like you're engaged. Even if you don't have anything to say, it's better to talk than not to talk. It's the whole thing with uh, teachers in high school and university. If you don't know a question, just write something down because you, at least you'll get some partial marks. And that's the thing with Molly. Keep that energy, be engaged, be active, because you need to last mm -hmm. for literally 16 to 24 hours on average for a competition. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an underrated aspect, but we're talking about intellectual stamina, uh, resilience, both, I think, mental and emotional resilience, especially when things aren't maybe necessarily going your way in negotiations or in debate with other delegates, um, and real like poise and professionalism. There just aren't a lot of opportunities in teenage life, at least not um, as our society has constituted it, to dress formally, talk formally, stand formally, um, and, and behave with a real sense of responsibility and pressure on you, right? We, we tend to reserve those situations for, for professional life and adult life. So giving students a, a pretty big runway, giving them weeks leading up, giving them, you know, making sure they're well-informed about what's coming their way, but then putting them in that three-day gauntlet, 
right? That, that intellectual right. test, um, you know, it, it stands as one of the, I said earlier, one of the four or five real big moments that I remember thinking, holy smokes, I'm learning something here when I was in high school. Um, right. And I think probably that memory also is, is so resilient because of the high pressure that, that was on mm-hmm. me. Um, so Sam, given that that's the case, um, for, for the students out there who maybe haven't been in a position where they have to exhibit that kind of poise and, and intellectual stamina, maybe they have that, that very common phobia about public speaking or expressing themselves in front of lots of people. Any tips for, for that student going into a conference? Uh, really, just take it easy. I mean, at one point or another, everyone in that room that you're currently with had a first time going at this. Not everyone went into a room and hit a home run on the first time they're speaking. It's a natural process, even if it's your first time and you're really shy or you're just hesitant because maybe you'll say something wrong. There's no shame in it. Like everyone, it's a learning curve. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So if the first time you go and you're not that talkative, uh, just keep like view the other people around you, you know, just try to get comfortable. At the end of the day, it's not life or death, really. <laughs> It, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be stimulating. You're supposed to learn something out of it. You can take it serious, but at the same time, just try to relax. Worst case, you just get up, you say something. Maybe you didn't formulate it that well, but you always have the opportunity to say something afterwards or you'll learn from the mistake. That's, take it easy, pretty much. Like Everyone had a first time doing at this. Nobody's the greatest of all time when it comes to public speaking. Yeah, yeah. I, I... It, it, it sounds like simple advice, but I think there's something powerful in reminding students that like, this is one of the only times in your entire life where everybody is in on the fact that this is a, a trial run. This is a test, yeah. right? This is not the, this is not the United Nations, right? The, the lives of others do not hang on your words and decisions here. Um, we call that experiential education. I'm a, I'm a big, big believer in it. It's something that feels lived but has the sort of guardrails and, and safety nets that are necessary to give a, a young person the boldness to try out skills that they haven't necessarily perfected yet. Right. And it, it's, exactly. it's nice to read a textbook about the United Nations and it's nice to research foreign policy. Uh, but there's nothing like that lived experience, that, that pressure moment. And I, as far as I'm concerned, and I hope um, every teacher at least who's, who's involved in model UN coaching would embrace this. Um, if that student shows up, um, you know, in, in a button down shirt and slacks and stands up in front of a bunch of other people their age and, and takes a chance, right? Tr- tries to express something that they've learned about the world. Um, that's a win, right? Whether, exactly. you know, to, re- regardless of the, the accuracy or the, the fluidity of the statement, right? That, that, that student is doing something that will pay dividends down the line. Um, Trial and error. Yeah. When, when a student comes to, I'm going to call it money, just because I like the, the acronym, but Model UN oh. York, M-U-N-Y. Um, when they come to money in, in uh, fall 2023, what, what types of specific issues do you envision them talking about? I've had my experiences in the past that have been pretty cool, but what do you have in mind for, for upcoming conferences? Uh, for money, uh, now I'm saying it. Damn. Yes. Uh, I, I'm more of a guy who prefers the, uh, I don't know, the term, a crisis or like the historical aspects of simulations, like uh, like a simulation of the past. Or if it's like eh, surfing, like Napoleonic Wars, the War of 1812, World War One, like or like even older, like Roman times. That's what I prefer. 
generally. Uh, but for like the fall conference, like general assemblies, probably if I had to think on the fly, something with the global chain, uh, basically, you know, COVID-19 pandemic, everything's started, halted pretty much with imports and exports. To this day, they still haven't fully recovered the whole export chain. There's a lot of restrictions or there's a backlog that just keeps piling on. That would be a great GA. Uh, probably something in the Security Council as well to uh, obviously the whole Russia-Ukraine thing or like conflicts in Africa, the Middle East. Something about how can the UN Security Council do a better job in mitigating or solving conflicts peacefully rather than the use of force. And like WHO, like the World Health Organization, that's a no-brainer. You can do that as well. Yeah. But like those are some examples. I, I'm, I'm glad that you went in that direction because I was going to ask you about the, I guess, the pros and cons of looking at ongoing crises around the world. It's it, I can see the benefit of choosing a historical crisis where maybe we know at least mostly what was done, what policies were, were put in place and the results of those policies. And so we can compare anything that's done in a, in a simulation with reality. When we talk about, I mean, goodness gracious, what a year for, for the United Nations. But um, when we talk about situations like what's the, the protests in Iran, and I know the UN has just uh, decided nearly unanimously to, to at least hold discussions about what, what can yeah. be done to intervene there. Um, when we see really their, their absolute failure and, and kind of the, the embarrassing, um, uh, helpless situation that they're in, in, in regards to Russia and the Ukraine, uh, the, the Xinjiang, um, region of, of West China and, and some of the controversies that have gone on there. Yeah. I know the, the human rights, uh, branch of the, of the UN took a year to release their, their research about what was going on there. It was released, I think 15 minutes before the chair of that that particular arm of the UN stepped down from from her position. And then after all that research is done, research that that had some pretty troubling, I say troubling, that's an understatement. I mean, we were talking about uh, crimes against humanity that were um, discovered being being practiced systematically there. Uh, It goes to a, the, the next move is for a vote about whether to discuss this issue. And having just done this research, I know that vote went 19 against, 17 in favor, and 11 abstentions, right? And you talk about when, when they're trying to debate intervention in, in Russia, Ukraine, 40 countries abstained from that vote. And then, of course, you've got a, a Security Council member who can veto any, any uh, outcomes of that vote that they want. Same with China. Um, when you've got, that's a long way of getting back to the question. Yeah. When, you're, when you're thinking about simulating some of these crises, right? Whatever, and I've named two or three, but... Sadly, there are probably hundreds we could name. Um, what do you see as, as the real upshot of, of, of what I see as probably taking a chance on that? And do you see any uh, potential dangers or, or potential uh, negative effects of, of dealing with something that really hasn't been resolved in real life yet? Well, for the simulation, usually the idea is everybody, no matter which side you are on, if you're the U.S. or if you're Russia Security Council, you're supposed you're supposed to come to an agreement, whether that's great for the real world or you know just in that room. You're supposed to make compromises, something the UN actually doesn't do in real life. But in that purpose of that room, those students participating, no matter the age group, the idea is we need to solve this problem, and we're not going to throw a tantrum if we don't get our way and veto everything. But like that's the whole 
unironically, the kids are trying to act like adults and the adults are acting like the kids. That's true, how it looks from the outside, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for like, to- like, I've been to conf- conferences where we've done the Israel and Palestine issue. We did Afghanistan, uh, where I was Afghanistan and we were talking about the whole Taliban thing, which was not fun for me. Mm. But uh, those rooms can get heated, especially if you're representing a country that's either unanimously pro one of those issues, like you're pro-Israel or pro-Palestine. My thing was I was Bolivia and I was pro-Palestine. And uh, it was under the former president who got exiled. Well, uh, but in that room, it's kind of uncomfortable a little bit because you have to say things, even if you don't truly mean it, or if you mean it, but not to that extent where you have to role play or you have to simulate what's happening in the real world, it sometimes gets heated or you become a little bit uncomfortable because maybe other people look at you sideways. But that's the whole point. You start a dialogue. You can't just say, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, let's not do this. Russia and Ukraine, I don't really want to talk about it. Anything in the Middle East, eh, no. Oh, it's like, it's too depressing. It's too sensitive. No, you have to talk about it. At the end of the day, like something needs, you need to start communicating to address those problems, even if you're uncomfortable with it. And that's what Mall UN can do. You can start the conversation at the lowest level. And maybe when you grow up, you'll remember those times and it can start enacting change in the future. Yeah. No, I, I really love that approach um, because I think the alternative take any of these issues that we've, we've just hinted at, um, is for a, a teenager to get little glimpses of something that looks or feels really important, right? If you're, if you're an uninformed person, if you haven't watched much news, you're, you're still, you know, growing up in this world and you see a reference spoken in a very severe tone and a passionate tone to the Israel-Palestine conflict, and you have no other information, you can go two routes there. You can either sort of go, I think the way that, that a lot of young people are encouraged, which is what you just alluded to, uh, ignore, this is an unsolvable problem, right? Irreparable uh, damage has been done. Nobody's ever going to come to a conclusion. So, you know, just move, move elsewhere. Think about other things. And that, that almost seems like, as you say, the, the, the way the adults in the room are, are behaving with a lot of these issues. Um, the alternative is to really take that moment hopefully with that young person and say, yeah, and, and you probably noted how, um, how tense the, this, this felt to talk about, right? That's because here's a little context, here's a little history, right? Here are some routes that you might take to understand this issue better. Because I, you know, I, I grew up much like you. I remember just passing references on TV to things like uh, the Gulf War. Or I remember um, the, the first time I became aware that uh, Bill Clinton was being impeached. And just having absolutely no context, no, no ability to even place that in my world of, you know, in my mental landscape. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that it was important enough to be on TV back when TV still had, you know, shows and, and, and you know, daily news and stuff like that. Stuff that maybe our younger listeners might not be so familiar with these days. Um, and so a, a Model UN's willingness to address in a really concentrated um and unapologetic way, some of these these admittedly deeply complicated and, and difficult topics, uh, I think is, is something like a passport to engagement with the world for a lot of these young people. Yeah. And the benefit is you get, you alluded to context, it's good to know actually what's the issue or you can just hear fake, like uh, just comment out of place. Ma Yuan, you get both sides of the argument 
it's not you know there's some people that just get one side of the argument whether it's just uh it's all left or it's all right uh, you just hear that if you just stay in that mental mental state and just listen to those arguments you just think everything that's being said by the other person is invalid because you're not listening to them you just know what you're taught while you in you hear the best of both worlds you understand where each person's coming from you understand both their values and then you can decide which one you prefer or which one you agree more to that's better than just listening to one person or not listening to either of them you need the both you need the conversation from both ways to have a formulated valid opinion on the issues yeah yeah and that that model opens up i think for these young people the assumption that there aren't intellectual topics that are off limits right that that even things that we've grown up with as you say hearing largely one side of um are up for debate are up for question and that it's not an insult or an offense or in bad taste to question norms right to question whatever you grew up with hearing as normal because we all have our our blinders right we've all got our our individual context and and nobody has all the info nobody has the the full scope um if you grew up with parents who are from a specific political party, or you grew up in a school that adheres to a certain religion, you're, you're, you're getting one story, right? And you're often being discouraged in, in various ways, whether conscious or unconscious, from, from questioning that story. But boy, what a more beautiful, powerful, dynamic, uh, internal world you can have when that ability to question um, is accepted. Um, last year because the uh, Glendon Model UN was under renovation, let's say. Uh, Our school uh, was looking for something similar, um, and we ended up going with uh, the University of Toronto hosted their first ethics bowl. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, ethics bowls and and the difference between that and the Model UN, are you? I'm going to presume it's just a bunch of philosophers talking about (laughs) ethics. Um, it, it's a, a, a valid assumption. Um, it was run out of the philosophy department at, uh, at U of T. Um, but it's, it's young people who certainly don't need to be in a, in a philosophy class to participate. The, the primary difference is, I, I think Ethics Bowl is largely a response to debate societies, which Model UN might fall as a, a subsidiary of. Um, and the ultimate goal of a debate society, which, as you said, is to uh, certainly hear different sides but ultimately pick one and then push, argue, uh, cajole, negotiate your way towards the closest version of that as possible. So you, you do end up with Model UN, you have an agenda, you have a side, right? And you're, you're ultimately, uh, hopefully in, in as collaborative a, way, collaborative a way as possible, you're trying to defeat another side, uh, another uh, policy approach. With the ethics bowl, the, the idea is you're rewarded not for defeating. In fact, you're punished for, for um, diminishing or, or um, in some ways, um, I guess, erasing uh, the other side. And the entire point is, is, being, is rewarding students for um, sheer collaboration, for finding a real middle ground, not something that's as close to their original side as possible. Do, do you see value in that? Um, do you see ways in which Model UN also does, does that? And do you see any pitfalls in that type of approach? I think the idea of the ethics bowl is noble in the sense that they want everyone to come to the exact understanding, to not just bully you or outvote you in the sense of how you're explaining. They want you to see the light in the sense of 
you know, let's let's create this idea where we all agree to it, and not either side is dominating the equation. That's very utopian, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But in terms of realism, mm-hmm. that's uh, not. You know, you can't always expect the other side, even if you have the most passionate arguments, the most knowledge. You know, you have all the facts, all the evidence, overwhelming amount of people support it. There will always be the couple outliners who are saying, nah, for any reason, just nah, I don't really want to agree to that. And I'm sticking to my principles. And that's what you get with Model UN. I mean, even if you get 90% of the room to vote for you, it still passes. Or if you get 51% of the room to pass for you, it still passes because democracy, you know. Uh, I like the ethics rule. I think it's a great thing to do as a side thing. Like you can be in both Mall UN and in the ethics rule. Yeah. I think both help each other. Ethics bowl will probably make you a better convincer or increase your persuasion ability than comparative to Mall UN because Mall UN just get that majority and no matter what the minority says, you just put your agenda through. Yeah. I think that's the benefit of ethics bowl, but I'll still do Ma UN. No, I think I would get really tired with the ethics flow after a while because we're just all agreeing to the same thing at the end of the day. I'm like, ah, great. Yeah, yeah I totally see your point. And my, my instinct is to want, uh, I guess, I, if, if I just think of it very, very generally, I certainly don't mean any negative connotations with this, but as kind of hard and soft arguing or, or what you've r- phrased as persuasion, I think I'd, I'd prefer to take a stand and, and, and really learn how to how to defend a point rather than go in with the assumption that I'm going to be compromising perhaps even something that I, I hold in very high value. Um, and I mean, we're seeing the implications of these types of skills and these types of situations playing out in real time all over the world. Um, the, the thing that immediately comes to mind, I don't know if you're uh, up to date on the Kevin McCarthy house speaker situation. Have you seen any of this? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. So we're, we're here recording on uh, January 10th and, and I believe Kevin McCarthy has just been... Um, yeah, vote, voted in Speaker of the House. He got his majority, whatever he needed, 218 votes or something, after 15 consecutive failed, or 14 failed votes. He got it on the 15th try. Now, this is a situation where you have two sides of an organized government body, the, the American Congress, um, refusing for, for an embarrassingly long period of time, an unprecedentedly long period of time to come to anything clo- resembling a compromise. This is a gentleman who believed that he was in the, the most valid position to assume the second most powerful uh, mm. position in American governance, the Speaker of the House, and um, was basically stonewalled by the opposition party. Not much of a surprise there if you're following American politics these days, but stonewalled also by an extremist faction of his own party and a, an, a radical inability and refusal to, to compromise and, and engage in um, good faith debate has, has left us in situations politically, not just in America, although it, it's pretty pronounced over there, um, where we, we're just at a, an absolute impasse, right? We're seeing um, legislative bodies that, that are unable to fulfill their mandate, right? Unable and unwilling to, to pass laws, to, to enact helpful policy. When you look at the United Nations, uh, a body that's that's taking years just to get to the debate about ongoing crimes against humanity, right? Ongoing existential crises. Um, to what extent, when you see these different arenas that, that uh, a model United Nations might simulate, 
To what extent do you see an argument for perhaps even um, dissociating model United Nations from the United Nations, if not in name, at least in approach, at least in in, uh, the way you go about your your procedures? Well, the thing is, I don't know, with the whole, it actually kind of relates with the UN and their refusal, or they just take forever to finally discuss on the topic, and the same thing with the U.S. Congress. Mali, when the whole point is, you're, you need to reach an understanding. You need to accomplish, like if you're representing a certain issue, you're serving the state, you're not really serving your political entity. You're supposed to do what's best for everyone involved. And that's something that the UN has factionalism in their own system with. One country has a group of members who always back them up and they only focus on what they care about. Same thing with you know, the Congress, which is technically you're all supposed to serve the state. You're supposed to serve the people. I don't really care what party you're supposed to vote for or what party you represent. If the other guy is suggesting an idea to benefit the lives of everyone or a significant portion of the population, then you can vote for them or you can support them. It's not a big, it shouldn't be a big issue. That's what you get in Mall UN. Like people don't really focus on the factionalism you can have like allies and you can have potential opponents, but like you're not sitting there stonewalled and say, I will never agree with you. I will never do what you say. I got people back. I got political entities above me saying, I can't do this. You can't do that. If it's corporations and parties, you don't see any of that. Mm-hmm. You just do what's best for a, a significant portion. And that's something the UN and levels of governments, the US, Canada, the rest of the world, they just can't see past that. They're like, if my side doesn't benefit, I don't want part of it. Yeah. Even if my side's neutral, I don't want a part of it. That's the whole whatever nonsense that is. Yeah, yeah, that's where we're at these days, unfortunately. Um, no, I, I I see your point, and, and I do appreciate the, I'll call it the scope for idealism that, that's available to students who participate in Model UN. You don't have a lobbyist sitting in your, you know, devil on your shoulder telling you, oh, no, 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 we can't make that decision for your constituents. Um I guess I want to push this just one step further and then and then maybe pull back and, and just get your final thoughts on Mun. Um, I'm struck by, recently in the news, um, have you seen this congressman, George Santos? Anything about him? Yeah. yeah. So we've Congressman got, of Florida. Oh, no, governor of Florida. Uh, that's DeSantis. That's, uh, that's Ron DeSantis. Yeah, George Santos. Maybe. Is he in the... Oh, no, we had the one who faked his uh, there you go. credentials. That's right. Yeah, Republican, yeah. Yeah, so th- this is an extreme example of, I think, a trend that we've we've rightly noted in the past few years. Uh, I know Merriam-Webster's dictionary made uh, the, the hyphenated term post-truth, uh, as in mm-hmm. living in a post-truth world. That was their word of the year, uh, either last year or two years ago. And we've heard this quite a bit. We are now living in a post-truth world. Where, where in, in an extreme case, a gentleman named, named George Santos um, has been elected uh, as a representative of, I believe, the 3rd District of New York. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a, a, a young person who, in, in terms of their, their identifiers, I think is quite unique in the Republican Party. Um, the assumption of the voters was that he was vetted and that they were, they could believe all of the different sales points that he was making in, in, in defense of his candidacy. He's voted in. He in fact was sitting on the, the congressional floor during, uh, Kevin McCarthy's debacle. 
by himself uh, by, alone. By himself, quite right. Yeah, sitting by himself alone. The reason he's sitting by himself alone is because he's currently being investigated by basically every journalistic uh, organization this side of the, uh, the Atlantic for having lied about what sounds like just about everything. Having lied yeah. about um, his personal identifiers, such as his, his religion, his, his background. Um, he's lied about his, some criminal aspects of his past. He's lied about the companies he worked for. He's lied about the charities that he uh, allegedly run. Um, I, as far as I can tell, he was being hounded um, in the congressional halls earlier this week by reporters who were asking him what his legal name was. The worst part of all this is that there's no mechanism for um, causing him to step down. He has not, this is crazy to say, he has not broken any rules. He has not done anything illegal by completely falsifying his identity and running for one of the most powerful offices in his country. Right now he's having direct influence. So again, a very long setup for perhaps a much shorter question. In a quote unquote post-truth world, um, what is the, what is what is there to motivate a student to act in good faith in their academic life, their participation in a model UN conference, and then even further into their, their personal life? I guess. See. Inspire the youth, Thought. Sam. Let us know. Yes. Give them hope. Inspire the youth. When, when the top of any organization, whether it's small UN or real life society, if it's school or if it's the government, when the top is top people in charge are behaving in a way that morally is questionable or if it's outright wrong the way they do it they send a message to everyone below them saying it's acceptable to be like this if you uh, we lie therefore you can lie because you know we're technically in a higher status of you you know learn from us basically or the whole uh do uh, do as i say not do as i do like act but that they're go on both levels of the act like this but you just need to know like what your conscience is saying or like what you you need to be able to look through all the negativity all the actual clouds the misinformation the post-truth and just be able to be the best the individual you can be like the best person you can be morally you don't need you can have religion to help you support that idea. You don't have to have religion to support you that idea. You don't need a mentor to tell you what to do, what to, not to do. You should be able as a human being to understand what's right and wrong, what's the truth, what's not the truth. It's a hard, it's idealistic. Yeah. It's, but you know, what makes the real character a person or an individual is the ability to understand all of that and actually do it. Not just speak it, but to actually act it. And, you know, I'm not saying Molly wants the answer for everything. We're not offering the cure to cancer or anything, but it's it's one step in the way to achieve that goal, to fully embrace the positivity, to reject the cynicalism, the factionalism, the misinformation, to achieve the ability to be the best of who you can be, whether it's on either side. But as long as you are doing what you think is right, that should be okay. I love it. I, I, asked, I asked for inspiration and uh, you got me. Um, I couldn't agree more. And I especially love that notion of permission, that, that when you witness uh, behaviors being conducted by, by perhaps those who are held in esteem or who have status in your society, that behavior is permission for you to behave the same. And when you behave what you've called idealistically, I think what we can also probably call rightly, 
that's permission for others to be brave. That's permission for others to think a little more deeply in a, in a little more nuanced way. And I think that's the great value of, of not just MUN, but any um, educational organization that, that gives students the experience of really, really thinking through their, their situation, applying their values to it, and finding a way to, to stand for it, um, often against others who are perhaps not acting in such good faith. Um, so I've just, I've been inspired by Sam. I'm, I'm, let's say I'm 15. I listened to this, uh, this podcast. I said, boy, he may say it's idealistic, but I want to live up to those ideals. Can you just give, uh, the young people out there some resources? What, what can they look at just to give them a better sense of, of what MUN is and, and how can they get started in their own school? Perhaps if, if they don't have a ready-made, uh, MUN program to just walk into. Well, if they do have a ready-made model, uh, MUN. Uh, you said it, you have a, a man named Sean, who's in charge of the Braemar uh, Mall UN. So if you're a Braemar student, go ahead. I mean, I presume there's office hours, there's an email, you can contact Sean directly. Uh, if you don't have a month society, it's not that hard to create one. I mean, all you have to do is get, you can just have five members. You don't need a huge, you don't need 45 people waiting at the doorstep. You can have a small collective group of people. If you can get like a teacher who's interested, who wants to be your faculty advisor, that's great. You know, you can ask around. It's no shame or like, it's not to convince a teacher to give you them 30 minutes, maybe an hour of their time a week. It's an ask, but if you're just very nice about it, polite about it, say what you really want to do. You want to participate, communicate, learn new things. That's no difficulty. Like in high school, we didn't even have a faculty advisor. Mm. We kind of just had the group of people and like, yeah, wow. counts. Let's Good do for it. you. Yeah, I mean, on paper, we had a faculty advisor. He just never showed up. I see. But uh, it's not that hard to create one. And if you already have one like you guys have, it's just very simple. And it's great if you have a good leadership structure, like the people who are in charge of it are like doing a great job, then it's more beneficial for you. Uh, that's the great thing about having sometimes leaders because they'll or arrange and organize everything for you and you can just have fun learn things uh but yeah it's not that hard to make a club make no, a it's, club. no it's not club. yeah yeah that you'll look back on the things that seemed like big barriers and realize how small they were um and and we couldn't be more thankful as you said we we look to your leadership and and to glendon munns before yours um when i started mun with uh, one of our teachers here miss connie chong we didn't know what we were doing right we we, we didn't know how to organize th this group and because we had a structure to refer to, we went to a couple conferences, watched how things were done. We very quickly jumped right in, did not tell our students that, that we didn't know what we were doing. We, exactly. we let them believe in our uh, capacities. But uh, it all, it, you know, d despite all of that, it, it was a wonderful learning experience for all of us and has continued to be. And so if you're a young person out there and uh, your school does not have a, a model UN, but you've liked what you've heard today, and maybe you're interested in what's going on in the world and want to find a space to learn more about it and be a little bit more active. As Sam said, you know, the, the, that first step, go talk to a teacher. Go, go ask, you know, the, the one who's, who's given you the time of day before, hey, um, is there anybody on staff who, who might be able to give an hour a week to, to help me and, and a couple of my friends set up a model UN? I think you do that, and the, the sky's the limit afterwards because there is... There's a lot going on in, in this sphere, and, and maybe one day you find yeah. yourself at a Harvard conference or a Berkeley or a, a U of T. Exactly. Hey, great, greatest time to be alive. You have a lot of topics to talk about. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, for better or worse, there's, there's no shortage of material. 
Well, Sam, thanks so much for, for taking the time to be with us and to represent money. Uh, best of luck with the, the training and, and the, all the, the myriad preparations that go into running that fall 2023 conference. We'll certainly look for your email invitation whenever those are ready to come out. Uh, any yeah. final words uh, uh, before we let you go? Uh, no, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. Hey. Uh, school, university life, driving, it's a hassle. We get but it. no, I love being able to. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for accommodating me on Zoom. And I wish you guys luck. I, I don't know if you guys are going to any conferences uh, this uh, semester. If you are, I wish you guys win all the best delegates. Thank you. We, we appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, we certainly uh, look forward to some success there. Uh, Sam, we'll hope to be in touch with you soon, but all the best till then. You too. Thank right. you so much. Bye-bye. And don't forget to tune in again next week when I'll be speaking to Dr. Kevin Bryan. Dr. Bryan is a professor at the University of Toronto who's going to be talking to us about OpenAI's new product, ChatGPT, and the implications of artificial intelligence on things like education, communication, and the world at large.